Hey, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Cody Townsend and I are back to review some of the outdoor-related news of the month of December, including Cody's not-so-excellent second half of the month of December. You'll be hearing more about that in a minute. And we are also discussing nuclear fusion and whether it would be a good idea to nationalize ski areas. We've got the most Canadian news, but folks... Very happy to report we have our first Mountain Town relationship advice questions and, you know, Cody and my answers for better or for worse. I guess you will be the judge of that. Anyway, a number of you wrote in with really great questions and folks, keep them coming. You can send us your questions through the contact us form on our website or you can send us a DM on our Instagram page and we will continue to do our best to work through a couple of these questions each reviewing the news episode. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Open Snow, which I think I've been looking at about 20 times a day. The snow has just not stopped around here in Crested Butte. And so as I continue to just want to be clear on how much has piled up and how much is coming in the next day or two, particularly so we can figure out what width of skis we should be out on for testing. Well, yeah, so I've been using open snow a lot. And I have to say, man, it has been awesome to see snow falling in so many different parts of the country. I know not everywhere. Apologies to those places where it's been a little thin, but still always great to see the snow piling up in multiple places around the country or around the world. And if you aren't already a subscriber to Open Snow, we have good news Listeners of the Blister podcast can go to opensnow.com slash blister to get an exclusive offer of 60 days free use of the Open Snow app. And so there is literally not a single reason why you shouldn't be checking out this app. So whether you care most about getting reports of the snow that's fallen or whether you care more about forecasts, or whether you want to read great reports. Well, Open Snow does all of that really well. And so, again, go to opensnow.com slash blister to start your exclusive 60-day trial, and you'll see why I and so many other people in the snow sports industry have come to use and trust Open Snow so much. Finally... With all this snow falling here in Crested Butte, it's probably a good time to remind you about our upcoming Blister Summit. That takes place February 12th through the 16th. And so you can come demo a bunch of ski gear and snowboard equipment. And that is both inbounds or on the guided tours we have available for backcountry skiing and splitboarding and gear demoing. So we will include a link to the Blister Summit registration in the show notes of this episode. We have a ton of information about the summit on our website, and we promise you 
This is a not-to-be-missed event in the snow sports world now, and I'm willing to bet you that this Blister Summit is going to be at least one of your favorite weeks of the entire winter, maybe even the number one week of the winter. So check out the summit and then come hang out with us in Crested Butte. And now, time for Cody and me to review the news. So here we go. Well, Cody, I feel like I should be saying something like Happy New Year, except we're recording this on December 30th. And so I hope you have a happy new year. But by the time people heard this, I hope you did have a happy new year. This is confusing. Yeah, that is. It sounds confusing. I was lost and I'm like talking to you about it right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I could say I would say my new year is probably going to be a little bit more on the mellow side. So we talked it was like two weeks ago. That last uh, December review in the news was out a little late, mainly because of me. Yeah, it's your fault. Most things are. I know we were really looking forward to me flying to France and doing a podcast, super jet lagged, probably on a couple glasses of wine and like a belly full of cheese and being like super loopy um but that didn't happen because we did it in my van i will say we are very happy we did it in my van because that trip ended up being the worst trip of my life by a lot (laughs) and i'm glad you i'm glad you start you're starting here this is bringing back memories i was mad because i wasn't able to go skiing when we talked but you had this trip that then just turned into this nightmare and you kept updating me and it just like kept getting worse. So yeah, tell tell the people. Yeah, so like I don't want to make this sound like it's complaining, you know, like as a professional skier, we have really good lives and I wouldn't trade this job for anything. But there's still aspects of it being a job and there's sacrifices to it and there's hardships. This was one of those. So Yes. As soon as we got done with the recording, the podcast, I went to go catch my flight. My flight kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed because there was a huge storm coming in. Get on the flight. My by the time I land in San Francisco to connect a directing fight, I'm pretty much like five minutes till the doors close. I sprint through the airport. I get there. The doors are closed. And then I asked, I'm like, oh, man, like, can I get on? And they said they called the pilot pilots. Yeah, we're not. We got another 10 minutes. So I was like, yes. So I go to check in. When I check in, my boarding pass doesn't scan because United had changed my flight. They'd already pretty much assumed that I was missing that flight. So then I'm on the phone with United just like practically screaming at them, please change my flight back because you have now on a new itinerary. Go back to the original one. The woman I was talking to was pretty much had no idea what was going on. And it was the most difficult conversation I've ever had to the point where in the five to 10 minutes that I was on there, she couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. They closed the door gate. So whatever. Meanwhile, <laughs> back home, the power is going out. My parents are with me. My Elise is in the middle of teaching safe as clinics and there's a massive storm and the power's out. So I'm trying to coach them through firing up generators, getting the whole like the gas stoves like relit and whatnot. So I'm stressed and guilty feeling because I'm just abandoning my family yep. during this. Yeah. Their time of need. Their time of need. Yeah. It's like kind of like the thing I'm supposed to do and what I'm good at. Um, Anyways, end up getting rescheduled. I fly all the way to Munich. Get to Munich. I was like, all right, I'm actually going to get there not too much later, maybe six hours later. Get on the flight. I'm taxiing. They shut down the entire airport. 
So they close the runways and everything. Go back. The uh, Munich airport is a madhouse. I figure out I somehow get a uh, hotel room, even though they're booking up like by the minute. I, I have an air tag in my luggage. I can tell my luggage is still in San Francisco. So I call and I'm like, can I get my luggage starting to get sent? They said, no, you have to reach your final destination. I'm like, I'm not going to reach my final destination for another like 14 hours. <laughs> Anyways, the next day, the next flight I was catching... They're going through and they're like, oh, there's been a medical emergency on our flight. So now we don't have an oxygen tank. So we're delaying this and we're going to have to cancel this flight because we can't find a new oxygen tank. So I get another oh, flight canceled. <laughs> so long story short, I ended up getting to honestly france at the end of the day so i'd already missed the first day of meetings um and again this is going to france it's like you're going into meeting rooms and whatnot so but i miss that whole day i have no luggage show up the next day we go up to uh valterans to test skis uh we're testing skis testing boots i will say testing boots is one of the worst things to test um especially because mm-hmm. like we were testing boots that were a size too small for me so i'm trying to figure out how they work when then i'm like screaming in pain don't get my bags don't get my bags i get back to the airport um i all of a sudden see my bag has showed up at the airport i'm leaving at like 7 a.m but the doors are locked to try and go get my air my bag to check it back in to bring it home so i'm like calling running through the airport i'm i'm went into the airport offices like the general administration they like kick me out they're like you're not supposed to be here i'm like can someone please let me in and my bag is right <laughs> there on this other side of the door I ended up getting it about 30 minutes before my flight. And so I'm running through the airport, trying to check it in, trying to make my flight just sweaty. I need to get home um, to make sure that Elise was leaving to teach safe as clinics. And we had to do a baby trade off and I had about a six hour window. <laughs> Anyways, I get home. I'm like starting to feel terrible. Get home. None of my bags showed up. I got like skis from Solomon, kind of my gear for the year. None of those bags showed up, whatever. At least they get delivered to my house. Get home. I feel terrible. My parents are home. My um, kid, Elise. And all of a sudden I was like, man, I feel really, really bad. My parents are like, we should probably leave. We don't want to get sick. And I was like, yeah, that's probably a good call. So they leave. Um, Hour later, I test positive for COVID give COVID to my entire family and have spent (laughs) now the last 12 days feeling awful. Like I finally testing negative, but it was just like, it was brutal. Like I got my ass kicked. I was home alone with my kid for four days who with COVID, he had it. I had it. I'm feverish. He's feverish. We're just like, oh, it was like kind of got a little scary at one moment just because it's your kid. But um, yeah, Mm -hmm. so like the whole thing was, I never received my luggage. I had this horrible flight situation where I pretty much missed most of the meetings and then came home with no souvenirs other than COVID. So it's been a terrible trip. I haven't skied since then. I've missed the two best storms of the ski season because of business (laughs) obligations. And since December 13th, I haven't skied a day. So right now, the only physical fitness I can do is walking through the neighborhood, um, because I can't, uh, there's a lot of studies that show that returning to sport too quickly can create really, really long-term effects and give you the long COVID symptoms and damage your lungs. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to the rest of the year and uh, it's just been brutal. Like worst trip ever. (laughs) (laughs) Worst trip ever. It was terrible. (laughs) 
yeah, your your life is you've definitely been living the dream. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's the professional skier dreamed. Live telling you everyone. Seth Morrison said it once that uh he said the more famous I get, the less I ski. And there's a certain truth to that, that you end up having to do Mm. more business obligations, uh, more kind of like showings and show up to more things and ski less. So uh, it's not the worst trade off, although, you know, I got into this because I want to ski as much as possible. But yeah, I like to think, actually, that this all was karmic justice for you not skiing Uller, jesus make it about Uller, yourself jonathan wow Uller looked down and was like yeah cody you jerk you kept jonathan from going skiing that one day <laughs> of course i was skiing like the next five days in a row but you know that one day so then Uller just rained down so karmic- you're saying Uller gave my kid covid because <laughs> you couldn't yeah. ski for a day that's, wow that's kind of where i guess i was heading there wow. yeah um i mean i didn't i didn't give indy covid <laughs> i would never do such a thing but uh but i don't i don't i don't control Uller. so yeah. well no i i don't know dude it's that was a nightmare <laughs> and i and i kept getting texts from you that were sort of hilarious and then i was just like thinking about the fact that apparently you're not changing clothes at five days in the same clothes same underwear so that was gross yeah Yeah, so this is that's a bad stretch for you man i really but people are listening to this thank god 2023 i hope it's all looking up for you yeah but that was a hell of an end of 2022 for you You know what i've noticed as a trend is no one really goes anymore like 2023 that's gonna be my year because i think we all got burned so heavily (laughs) by like 2020 that we're like everyone's (laughs) like yeah 2020 like all there was all those memes and jokes about like oh 2017 sucked and 2019 was the worst year ever and then it just got really bad in 2020 and everyone's like yeah we're not looking to the future anymore we don't count on any positivity just hoping that it doesn't suck as bad (laughs) yeah we're just all out here trying to survive um well i i i am i am hoping at least for a better start to 2023 than your mid the second half of december uh has been for for you and your family so uh my goodness Wow. Okay, man, we should wrap. I'm exhausted <laughs> totally. just hearing hearing about all that. Let's see. What would be the most obvious transition in topics? Probably we should go to nuclear fusion. Yeah, positive news. That would make sense. We just need to make sure that this is on everybody's radar, I think, because this actually does seem like quite a truly historic moment. And let me just read a few lines from this Wall Street journal article. So we'll include a link as we do to this article in the show notes of this episode. But the title of the article is Nuclear Fusion Breakthrough Accelerates Quest to Unlock Limitless Energy Source. That sounds really good. Let me just read a couple of lines from the article. The energy department said Tuesday that scientists at a federal research facility had achieved a breakthrough in research on nuclear fusion, long seen as a potential source of clean, virtually limitless energy. 
a controlled fusion reaction at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore, California, produced more energy than it consumed, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and other government officials said during a press conference from DOE headquarters in Washington, D.C. The milestone known as fusion ignition is unprecedented, according to the DOE. Also, side note, fusion ignition definitely needs to be the name of a new ski. Mm, I like it. First manufacturer to jump on that, you can have that one. Uh, Fusion ignition. Final quotes here. Secretary Granholm said that the breakthrough will go down in the history books and researchers at the lab's multi-billion dollar national ignition facility have been studying nuclear fusion for more than a decade using lasers to create conditions that cause hydrogen atoms to fuse and released vast amounts of energy. Since the facility began operations in 2009, the goal of a fusion reaction that produces a net gain of energy, a key step toward transforming fusion into a practical source of energy, had previously eluded scientists. So, in sum, this does not mean that, you know, we are going to be driving cars or have a bunch of sources, you know, in 2023 or in the near future where this will be implemented. But nevertheless, this is wildly promising. And those of us who care about clean energy and at a massive scale, this absolutely seems to be worth celebrating. Yeah. I mean, first off, my thing of celebrating is it's like it's always rad when you can get in there and be like these stories that lead with pretty much the fact that science is really effing cool and scientists and these incredibly brilliant hardworking, well-studied people are devoting their lives to doing something this and they've been you know there's been scientists for the last 60 years trying to figure out nuclear fission and the fact that it's like all of a sudden potentially happening is really, really cool. I will say I did read some takes on it of being like, yeah, we're a long way out from anything, like 50 to 100 years potentially because of everything that went into this. But it is a significant breakthrough. And like there's other clean energy sources that we're not quite utilizing to its full extent, whether that's solar you know, other, uh, even just nuclear isn't necessarily been there, but this is something to work for, for the future, which can provide yeah, pretty much limitless energy. And then if you're talking like spacecrafts and stuff that goes out to other places, it's pretty limitless as well. This is, you know, the kind of the key uh, ingredient for intergalactic travel, if you were. Um, so it's, it is pretty, pretty cool in many ways. Um, but you know, it's one of those things just like graphene, which we heard a lot about as being this wonder material hasn't come quite to being used. Who knows how much this is going to end up being used. It's really hard these days to build anything. Um, you know, I've been seeing so much stuff about like our own government and these top level kind of initiatives. It's really hard to build they're just kind of incompetent to build anything anymore like i just saw this thing about the high-speed rail that would go north to south in uh california you know that was approved by voters 14 years ago and they still haven't even built a single section of it um building stuff figuring out that key i think is going to be huge but the fact that this is a government-funded research facility they're doing good stuff maybe this can help ignite more funding the, the desire to build along these lines i don't know but um i'm 
optimistic, but also pessimistic when it comes to like actually implementing this. Um, so we'll see. Um, I think it's still, I think it's cool. That's more the main thing. I guess I find myself optimistic. And again, without, without assigning some sort of deadline on when we are going to see these things powering energy grids and the rest, I have no clue about that. But what we sure as hell have seen is that technological developments seem to be accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. And so I do not, I think this is too promising and too big to just have it kind of be put on the sidelines. And I do think that if we have seen any or anything in the last hundred years is that technological advances sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, this stuff is accelerating. If this is where we were getting massive energy grids and power sources coming from this, I mean, that actually solves the problem of clean energy at monster scale. Totally. And it's like where we're seeing a lot of advancements is specifically in energy, like the development yep. of solar cells, making those far more cost effective. The kilowatt hour rates have gone just like they're skyrocketing in terms of their efficiency for how much it costs to make them. Other sorts of energy solutions are doing the same sort of kind of thing. So it's like, it's really cool. And this also proves the point, like Livermore Labs is a government funded entity. There is private kind of donations as well. But for the most part, these things are funded by the government. That top down incentives and kind of investment in these fields from the government is really, really key to solving a lot of these issues. So, you know, a private company isn't going to spend the billions of dollars it takes to research nuclear fusion, um, but the government can. And so like continually uh demanding that politicians are pushing in sorts of green energy so they're funding science funding development like this is really important and it's really cool to see this sort of success come out of that you know if this was another 15 20 years people would probably be at one point uh questioning like why are we still funding stuff like this but you know this is why because we might be able to get ourselves out of our uh horrible energy um disposable fossil fuel energy mess that we are in so um yeah good job science you guys are cool Good job, science. Um, well, where do you want to go from there? Going from nuclear fusion to any other topic seems uh, like we're really coming down in scale here. But uh, where do you want to go? Uh, so there was this article that popped up in Jacobin. I don't even know what Jacobin is. It feels like it's a blog or something. <laughs> but um, I will say this was a very poorly written article. Uh, yeah. Just very kind of juvenile and not well thought out in many ways. I felt like it yeah. could have been way, way stronger. Um, but it did bring up a good topic that I kind of want to talk to you about. So um, the title of it is Nationalize the Ski Slopes. So it's kind of an opinion piece of arguing for why uh, ski areas should be run by the government, run be a nationalized entity. And it provides a few decent arguments, mainly about the costs of skiing going up so much. Um, the fact that the incentives of profit uh, don't necessarily match up with mountain town economics for humans that live in mountain towns for skiers themselves, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's a uh, it. it kind of talks about that doesn't do it gives some examples of talking about uh community run uh, entities you know we actually talked about one that had some drama this year but 
their tickets are $84 a day. Cannon Mountain in New Hampshire is about $90 a day versus larger ski areas um, on the mega passes that are now above $200 a day. Um, So the main thing I kind of wanted to talk about is does this argument have any merit and what level of government intervention do you think is appropriate for running ski areas? All considering the fact that like majority of the land, except for a few areas, are run on government federal land that's taxpayer funded land. So um, yeah, what kind of, I mean, what level do you think is appropriate? Full nationalization, no sort of intervention or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I mean, again, I I actually, you had proposed this article. I read it and I apologies to the author, but I was like, wait, Cody doesn't think this is a good article, does he? And then I asked you that you're like, no, okay, no, but interesting ideas. So I did not appreciate the execution here. It felt very black and white, you know, all bad here. But if we just nationalize and have government, because yeah, government's amazing at running everything all the time, if we've learned anything, but it is kind of proposed, well, let's just start some of these. And then I'm like, okay, dude. Like, so we've kind of got our current system, dude is like, we basically have endless mountains and, and ample snow everywhere. And I'm like, okay, still man. But so I'm all for, let's pop these up. Let's run the experiment. Right. And then it's not, so it's not proposing per se, this takeover of the current system. It is sort of saying, or at least the version I would go with is like, Sure, communities, if you want to start popping these up and opening these, if you are as optimistic as our author is, then what are we waiting for, right? Let's start creating these everywhere. And I'm happy to do that. You know, we have seen some very interesting places where this has been done to a more or less degree. But this idea that this is just where... Like that this is clearly the model that is going to work best everywhere. I don't actually buy that. I'm not prepared to believe that that is true. And I realize I'm not yet asking your question about, so what is the right level here? And actually, I'm going to just dodge the question and go back to you with it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm going to go back to you with this and then I'll, I'll kind of weigh in. But you think there is an appropriate level? Yes, I do. And I think it's more than the status quo, Um, mainly because I don't know what that looks like. Um, I don't know exactly how it would be executed. But when you look at the fundamentals of basic capitalism, unchecked libertarian kind of capitalism, it doesn't necessarily work in ski area economics because capitalism is based upon growth like its fundamental is capital the fact that you can invest in things the fact that you accrue capital and invest towards the future that is like one of the more definition the basic definitions of it so ski areas and investors rely on growth 
And there's only a couple ways to grow. So you can maximize skier days, but we're seeing potential issues with that. There's only so many skier days you can have and so many skiers you can have out there without having a just awful experience. Uh, you know, you see what's going on in the holidays right now and just, you know, three hour drives to get up Little Cottonwood Canyon, um, you know, lift lines that are an hour and a half. Like you can't add more skiers to continue to grow. Maybe you could add more midweek, but the fundamentals of our base society don't allow that. People just can't take off in you know, midweek all through the winter and go skiing on those less crowded days. So what are the other ways to grow? Well, it's usually through acquisition and increasing costs. And so far, what we're seeing is acquisition and increasing costs have been the primary way. We're going to start running into some serious issues. I don't understand when, or know when the point the FTC is going to step in and tell Vale, you have a monopoly on the market and we're going to need to break you up. I think there's going to be that point. If they continue to acquire ski areas at the rate, um, you know, there's data that shows that like 50% of the market goes through Vale. So it's like, if they're going to keep going through that, is there a point where they're just going to have a full monopoly power and the FTC has to step in? We currently have an FTC that has been pretty aggressive when it comes to monopolization and consolidation. Uh, when it comes to increasing costs, yeah, like you're going to start to eliminate more people. You're going to start to make it what it already is, is unaffordable for the people that kind of help make the town work. Like, and I'm not saying like we should make it so it's affordable just to make it affordable. Like the people that make a town work, like firemen, police, nurses, doctors, like, like a fundamental people that create a society are not a, able to live in mountain towns and or even participate in the sports that they move there for. And, you know, I know people that work at the Tahoe City Public Utilities Department that live in Reno and commute up here for a, not a well-paying job, but are working up here and they don't necessarily get to go skiing like they used to, whatever it is. So I think the increasing of costs and or consolidation has a limit. So at that point, you're like, well, there is going to be have to be some sort of government incentive or government kind of intervention because why how can you investors keep getting growth out of something that is going to continue to potentially affect the mountain town livability affect the costs of it and affect like like if we have a monopoly in skiing like costs are going to skyrocket we know mon what monopolies do they make worse services for people are we already reaching that i don't know not a not a lawyer and can make that proper judgment, but like to the point, like I think there has to be some potential more government intervention. I don't know what the, again, that's going to look like. I don't think nationalizing ski areas is going to be the best solution. As you said, um, probably not the best and most efficient way, but continually chasing growth and continually chasing profit doesn't match up with the realities of ski areas. That's kind of my opinion. Okay. First of all, since Apparently, this is just what I say every single month on reviewing the news. I still think this is a BS argument to talk about the price of a single day lift ticket. To me, it is a red herring. It is, it is something that doesn't line up with reality. So let's just, you know, go a little over the top here. It's a thing that gets headlines on social media and on the internet when everybody who's not really thinking through reality 
freaks out about this place is now charging $257 a day. They are trying to direct you to a less expensive season pass. And those season passes are cheaper than they've ever been. I think this is a false argument. And I don't I don't know why people insist on like one ignoring the cheap season pass and being up in art. What do you want to ski one day a year? That's the goal. That's not going to be sustainable for skiing either. Like, I, I don't get it. You, do you disagree with me on this? I have a slight disagreement. I totally agree that it is a red herring, that it is something that's like so focused on to sh- like highlight the, the cost of the sport. And it's like, well, it's there's certain ways it's come down. But there is data. Like, um, I don't know if you've read Adam Tews at all. He's a uh, historical economics and um historian of economics and he did a thing about skiing recently and was uh based upon the study that showed that no like overall skiing costs have gone up not necessarily simple to the the costs of of a a single day lift ticket it's everything that's involved with it it's gotten very very expensive um you know talking 25 dollar hamburgers you're talking housing that costs a lot more you're talking travel that costs a lot more you're talking everything it's more expensive to go skiing so what i the thing i disagree with though is that super expensive single day tickets do not create a feeder system for learning the sport for getting new participants into the sport. You, it it goes to, we've talked about this with golf. Like I'm not going to buy a membership to a country club, even if it's $800 and it's $120 to go for one round. If I'm trying out golf and I don't know if I'm going to like it. So that's where I look at it. Like you have a group of a family that's going to come up, like maybe one person has the season pass, but like maybe one other person is up there because for other reasons, they're up in the snow, they want to sled, they want to make snowmen, they want to go shopping, go to restaurants, they might ski one or two days. Like that is an experience of traveling. It's not so 100% ski focused. So I do think the expensive lift ticket, one, just turns people off to the sport because it does make headlines in general. And then two, it just turns off people that want to enter into the sport. So I think you're kind of creating a feeder system to the sport that is really, really tough to get into. Uh, like you just, I say you're an adult learner, say you're a family that's like, hey, like I really, I saw some skiing on the Olympics or on some movie and I really want to take my family up there. And you're like, we're going to buy season passes for the whole family. You're like, we don't know if we're going to like this sport like so we're going to spend like four or five grand for this but we could go up there and maybe try it out for a couple days so that's the one thing i do think these single day tickets i agree that they're kind of red herrings and they're just meant to funnel people into passes but funneling into passes is a huge commitment so i this is where i get like i i just think this model there's good things about it there's some negative side effects that we're starting to see. And I think there's this unlimited growth is not achievable without price increases or monopolization of the market. So at that point, maybe the government intervention is just the FTC saying like, hey, Vale, you can't buy any more mountains. And maybe that's it. I don't know. Yeah. If I had to make a prediction, I don't see that happening. Just a prediction, and I and I'm I I don't see that happening. 
With the FTC, the current FTC, I could see it sort of actually happening. They've been very aggressive. Lin, uh, LindaCon yeah. is pretty, LinaCon, pardon me, uh, has been very aggressive. Um, but Not successful, not, but aggressive. Yeah, but aggressive. And to the fact that there's actually mergers, I think just the, the fear of them cracking down yeah. is uh, has pretty much uh, deflated the mergers and acquisitions market in general. So, um, but I do also think that Vale's kind of like, well, no, we're just going to focus internationally as opposed to domestically. You know, their investment in Honormat, their investment in uh, Japan, all those kind of. I think they're trying to go a little more global. So, I just, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's. <sighs> Nationalizing isn't definitely the answer, but there's going to have to be some point where we do have some government intervention. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to see these negative side effects grow. Let me say this. For those of us who love skiing in the ski industry, this is an important topic. And I don't want people to think that I think we are currently in the best of all possible worlds. Can't imagine how anything could be better. Like, that's not reality. Everything can be better you know, even when good ideas happen and are executed, other new problems rise up in the rest. What I really want to implore people to do, we published an episode on the Blister podcast. It is episode number 219. And this was published July 25th in 2022. And this was a conversation that I had with Will Brandenburg of the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation. The episode title is called How to Produce More Olympic Skiers and Snowboarders, Grow Participation, and Support Rural Mountain Town Communities. And I actually think what Will outlines here, and these are not hypotheticals, these are real Smaller ski areas run in small rural mountain towns that are doing well. It's not a nationalized system. It is more of a community-led and community-driven sort of uh, network of small ski areas. And Will lays out a really compelling vision and a model. Again, not a hypothetical. These are There are examples that he cites where we could at least have a system where smaller communities could create inexpensive ski areas. And no, they're not going to have the most vertical feet in the world and all of the luxuries and amenities that a number of our largest ski areas have. But Talk about, Cody, your legitimate concern about a feeder system and getting families more inexpensively into this sport to even just try it out. I really would beg people to go back and listen to this conversation because rather than moving to like this hypothetical nationalized version, at least here in the US, I think what Will was proposing of these small community led and driven, again, underscore small, but that is a system that I think sounds fantastic. And then if and when a family ever feels like taking their trip to Utah, they can go do that. But to have more inexpensive, closer to home ski areas, I I absolutely love the idea and the vision of that. And we do have places. I mean, the the club fields of New Zealand uh, strike me as a bit of a model to this. And we've spent a lot of time there and they're freaking awesome. 
So anyway, I just, you know, I, I know this is going to be a topic that gets some people ticked off or excited and the rest. And before you send angry notes, please go listen to that conversation. Again, we'll put it a link to it in the show notes, but that's episode number 219 of the Blister podcast. And listen to what Will has to say. Yeah. No, and and I think one of the things I was envisioning in this is it's like most people think of government, they think of federal, they think of, and we were talking about the FTC and whatnot, but it's like the community run, I think more community input, government, yeah. local government input yes. would be better. And that's why I'm saying yeah. at its baseline, when I say the status quo as it is right now, I don't think is tenable for the future. I think there has to be more government intervention. And that can be your local county. That can be your local city. That could be your state. I don't know. But I just think that there's a there's a point where these issues are going to get so large that government is going to step in. Um, the fact that, you know, a three-hour drive up Little Cottonwood Canyon is not only just a headache and creates a terrible experience, it's a severe safety issue. Um, you're an avalanche train. If there's any sort of emergency, like you all of a sudden have complete and utter gridlock up a canyon, like that's gnarly. And that's when government is going to step in. So ultimately, I think, yeah, the community, more community input in an organized way would be a lot better. So here, here. Okay. Where do you want to go next? Uh, maybe where science fails. <laughs> oh yeah, we were so first we celebrate science. Now we uh, now we knock yeah, it. Yeah, so this was great. We haven't done a Blevins corner in a while, uh, but Jason Blevins had an article, uh, which is something I'd actually thought about when I heard about it coming out. So the headline is: Colorado ski town emergency dispatch centers fielding dozens of automated nine one one calls from skier iPhones. So there's this feature on the new iPhone. 14s and the new Apple watches that if you are, let's say, in a car accident, so you all of a sudden have a rapid deceleration, it automatically calls 911. And I remember thinking, I'm like, well, if I hooked a 20 foot air and stomp it, is it going to call 911 on me? Like, that's a pretty big hit. And I could see like that cause of calling 911 when there doesn't need to be. But we had to wait and see. Well, sure enough, it's exactly what this is doing. So the um, Summit County 911 has fielded 71 automated crash notifications from skiers' iPhones um, from just last weekend. So, yeah, we got an issue here. And people probably, I would say, if you're skiing, you got to disable that feature. I'm sure there's a way in there to disable that feature. But if you're going skiing, disable that feature. Because if you're flooding 911 and there's like real emergencies actually happening and all you did was like a heavy hockey stop or, you know, land a three off a park jump kind of heavy, like, yeah, this is bad. So not much to debate or talk about other than this. But other than like, I think people need to know this that if you get an i414 and you're a skier probably disable that feature yeah that that is more of a, a public service announcement but um and i mean I, it's funny though i can see somebody thinking like well i kind of hope everybody else disables it but i'm going to leave mine on in case something does really happen that's bad but then that shouldn't be signaling a call to 911. I mean, patrol your friends or some random stranger hopefully can go get a hold of patrol who can then check you out and determine your level. So it, it's long and short, it's hard to actually imagine a scenario for 
a skier, certainly skiing in bounds where everybody is actually savvier to leave these things on. Yeah. Except we don't, you and I don't actually know. I don't have a iPhone 14. So I don't know if these can be disabled I would imagine they could. I don't, I don't know. I actually, it's funny. I actually got hit up by Apple. Um, they wanted to, they wanted to like, because they've got some unique features with it that you can do, uh, you can reach a satellite with it. You can kind of like text, not text, like a kind of Garmin inReach style, but it'll, you can get an SOS SOS. message via satellite connection, which is pretty cool. Um, that's a unique feature. Um, they wanted, they were specifically hitting me up seeing if I wanted to be like sponsored for their watch told them I couldn't sponsored by Swatch. Um, but I did kind of bring that up with them. I asked him about that. I was like, how sensitive is it? Cause it was on my mind of uh, being like, huh. hey, is this going to go off if I do something heavy? But they didn't really know. So it was just like a marketing agency, but, um, maybe I should call them back, send them this, this link, be like, Hey, just FYI, if you're not, <laughs> if you probably already know about this, but this is becoming an issue. I need something lighter here. What do you have for us for the most Canadian news this month? So the most Canadian news, it's related to what the three episodes I just put out on the Bugs to Rogers Traverse. Um, I have a clip. I should release it on my social media or something. I've been digging through a ton of footage, but I talk about how there's all these hazards that all the guidebooks and the people that have done it tell you about, whether that's avalanches, storms, whiteouts, crevasses, rappels, glaciers, seracs, all that kind of stuff. There's hazards that are abounding. But the one thing they don't talk to you about is the wild animal impact. And as you can tell from our series, if you watched it, pine martens are pretty much the quickest way to end your trip. If your cache isn't buried well enough, they're going to get in there and raid it. We got lucky it didn't get raided, but we did have to fight off two Pine Martins. One <laughs> fight that, off. Yeah, one that <laughs> crawled into Biarde's tent because it, it was a floorless tent and stole his food straight out of the tent and then harassed him, like crawled on his head later that night. We buried the food and he was just harassing him all night. It was jumping on our head. Uh, it was just awful. And then later in the trip, he ended up actually getting his food stolen again. We thought we were in a zone where like, maybe there's not Pine Martins. No, they're everywhere. But this was sent to me by uh, Martin Lentz, who's a good skier from Canada. He's up on a hut trip right now and they were tra- they were checking out the AVI report and they wanted to bring in that there's one additional hi- uh, hazard that these Pine Martins can do. So someone put a public report called did piney trigger it and this may be the first ever recorded pa piney accidental size two in canada we look closely at the start zone for telltale hershey squirt which i didn't know what that meant to see if the poor bugger shat himself after triggering a slide but no see the third image it was a totally dope delayed onset poop ejection so a pine martin triggered a size two avalanche and then went and shit himself right after it (laughs) Like right at the bottom of this avalanche, Uh, they have a picture of the poop. So uh, I just want to let everyone know that in in Canada, not only can Pine Martin steal your food and ruin your traverse trip, they might be able to cut size size two avalanches on you. So uh, yeah, Pine Martins, they're a menace. Menace. Menace to society. Yeah. Menace menace to Canadian society? 
It's so funny because they're so cute too. They look yeah. like the cutest little animals and like they're just like these smiling little happy mouses and they are absolute terrorists. Um, they are just, they are vicious. So there's that folks. Beware. Beware the Pine Martins. All right, let's let's cut to the chase. This is what we've really, this is what we've really been hoping for, praying for, for months now. We're going to be moving now into our mountain town advice portion of reviewing the news. And more specifically, it's time to talk relationship advice. So I don't actually know how many of these we're going to get through right now, but I had said I would be sending blister shirts to anybody whose question we read on the air. If we read your question, send us a note. Tell me what size shirt you want. We will get those sent out to you. But we are very proud of our reviewing the news listeners because we got, I think, I don't, I think we're up to like 11 or 12 of these. But now, Cody, I would kind of been talking a big game how I'm sure, you know, I just assumed that you and I were amazing relationship advisors. We might about to be outed here. But uh, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see how this goes. So um, what I want to do is... I want to read first the first relationship question that we did get in. I'm just looking briefly here. We we want to protect the names of the innocent or guilty. So maybe for future relationship questions, let us know if you want us to read your name or if you, for the love of God, you know, don't want us to read your name. Um, but this one, we're going to go nameless. Um, but this one is... Uh, Hi, Jonathan and Cody. I think I have a good Mountain Town advice question for you. Let me premise my question with this. My girlfriend is my favorite ski touring partner and new but incredibly stoked alpine climber partner. Our first date was ski touring, and we've gone on probably 100 tours together over the last two years. It's awesome. Now, here's the rub. As we've come closer and closer to living together, I've noticed in our relationship that we've started having more miscommunications. Is this just part of growing a relationship or can these miscommunications bleed into our sometimes pretty heads up alpine adventures? I have a tendency to overthink these kinds of things, so I'll leave it to you all to hash this out. Please don't say my name because she sometimes listens. Signed, Dream of Nar. Do you have thoughts? I, I I actually asked for some clarification, which I then got. Should I read that part? No, I mean, I kind of got it in general. And I think they were talking more in miscommunications out in the field is where I got it. And I think the clarification kind of uh, uh, points to that being like out in the mountains while doing stuff. Um, so... I'll talk about that. And I think he brings up a really real point. And I think he brings up a really astute point when it comes to being in the backcountry, doing mountainous adventures, where communication is absolutely essential with your life partner. Um, so much so that Elise and I, when we teach our avalanche clinics, safe as our presentation is 100% focused on communication. And we bring in like examples of Elise and I having miscommunication out in the field because you think that we have ESPN um, to steal a line from bad girls, one of the best movies ever um, where you can read the other person's mind because you 
or spend so much time with them. And that has gotten us not into dangerous situations, but is created some mishaps. Like for instance, the one time we were going to go filming and I have a habit of leaving the skis in the back of the truck. She likes to take them all out and make sure they're all clean and dry and whatnot. And I don't care if they have rusty edges or whatnot. I just leave them in there. We always have a way of like, I'm always out to the car first. I'm loading it up. I assume that the skis are in there because that's where I left them the day before. She assumes I put them in there because that's always been my job. And then you drive an hour to the trailhead, go up a bumpy road and you open up, take the sleds off, open up the tailgate and you have no skis to go filming that day. So that stuff happens for sure. Um, And I think it takes an extra level of focus. And we talk about it in our uh kind of our communication presentation of like really trying to overemphasize talking with each other because you get trapped into that kind of partner relationship where you stop talking about stuff, probably because you're sick of the other person talking and you're sick of talking to them. And it's just kind of, it just happens. So, um, I think he's astute. I think you have to practice heavier communication. Um, I, we give a talk about how Elise and I go out there and we, I almost in a certain way practice it of just a talking out loud everything that I am observing in the field. So even if we're on a normal backcountry ski tour, we're two minutes in and I'm going like, hey, the the snow is a little heavier today. Like, oh, the snow fell off the trees. Just start talking about what you're observing. And that kind of almost sets the pattern up for everything that's being observed independently. It gets spoken. Um, because you can have that tendency in a relation to leave things unspoken because you assume that other person has the same experience as you, has the same thoughts as you, but you don't know that person might be, I don't know, maybe you had a fight two nights before and they're thinking about that. Maybe there's, uh, dinner reservations you have and they're worried about that. And so their brain may be somewhere else. You don't know that. And so practice over communicating practice, just being out there and talking and just say anything. And uh, the the best sign is the other person doesn't tell you to shut up because they know that over communication is important when you're in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Man, that was good. We're off to strong start. Yeah, at least you are. No, I think I think that's right. And the the irony is, I was kind of while you were talking, thinking, yeah, it absolutely needs to be understood by everyone. You never don't say the thing you're thinking in the backcountry. That just has to be rule number one. And um, and it makes sense that if you've gone out with this person before, especially if it's been a point of, you know, clearly a point of annoyance or something like that, you're like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to say that thing again, that I'm not that comfortable right now, or please so slow down or, you know, any number of things you, you don't want to say certain things or you're embarrassed to, and that just can't, if that's how you're going to go, people shouldn't agree to be your backcountry partner. Yeah. And I will, I'm going to add one more thing to this because he does have in his clarification thing. So he has this other part that says, we are also very supportive of each other and always try to empower the other in our daily lives. Not much fighting or arguing. So when we have a disagreement in the mountains, such as with backcountry navigation, our communication has a tendency to break down. So what are you saying? Even talking things out loud, things can break down because of that relationship. So this is the technique that I've used and that Elise and I both try to use. And even I use it with other partners that might have different viewpoints and whatnot is don't try to more 
overemphasize your argument, start asking questions to the other person. So through questions, you can kind of get people to better explain themselves. So let's say I'm going out with Elise and I'm like, hey, I want to go up to the top of this couloir and she's not feeling it for whatever reason. And she goes to me, she's like, well, why do you want to go up there? Um, well, because like, I think it's safe. Um, well, why do you think it's safe? Um, well, we haven't seen slides on that aspect. Would you read the Abbey report this morning? You're like, yeah. Oh yeah, it did actually say Northeast. There's some potential wind potential. So like wind slab hazard or something. So by asking questions, you kind of essentially can get the other person to justify why or why not they're feeling the way they're feeling or why you have a disagreement. Um, I think it's a less kind of forceful way to present not, not just your argument, but get the other person to explain why their argument they think is valid. So um, it's a technique I feel like I've used quite often is just like, hey, explain yourself, like, I, and come at it very open-minded, like, and maybe that is kind of the ticket to them to seeing that, like, oh, now they're seeing it the way I am, or you know, if your partner is tired or whatnot, why don't you feel like going up there? You're like, I just really tired today, and then listen to that, validate it, be like, okay, let's turn around. Um, I practice a veto rule in the mountains. If one person wants to turn around, we all turn around. So, so yeah. Um, that question technique, though, I've, I've found success with that. Hmm. So maybe if there's a summation, by the way, good practical suggestions on that front. And maybe if there is a summation is that actually it's not weird that more timeout can result in less communication. That's yeah. not strange. By no. the way, let's forget about the backcountry for a minute. What's the number one problem or one of the number one problems with just relationships in general? People stop communicating. Yep. And because you're like, I know all their stories, I know their moves, I know what makes them angry or doesn't. And so it actually is kind of a good issue. Initially, I thought like, yeah, this is pretty unique to the backcountry, never stop communicating. And it's like, wait, actually, no, just kind of never stop communicating. Yeah. Oh, it applies to life for sure. Look at that. Look at that. All right. Where we go next? This is a big one. Mm. <laughs> well, first of all, I think this is a question that has come up in more relationships than either some people would want to acknowledge or it's just kind of on a lot of people's minds if they live in mountain towns or play in mountain towns. So anyway, here we go. Hey, Jonathan and Cody, I have a question for mountain town advice. I dated a guy for about four years. We both loved skiing, camping, and hiking, but he was a better skier and hiker than me and always complained about how slow I was. It was a big strain on our relationship and a big part of the reason my ex eventually broke up with me. Fast forward a few years and I have switched jobs, moved to a mountain town, and devoted a ton of time to improving my fitness and outdoor skills. I am now a better hiker and skier than my ex. Well done. Good job. <laughs> I also have a new boyfriend. My new boyfriend and I share a lot of interests and friends and generally enjoy hanging out with each other. My problem is that my new boyfriend is not good at skiing and doesn't even like hiking. Not only that, he barely seems interested in trying to improve. I am at the point that I want to dump him just because he cannot keep up. 
However, I am torn because I do not want to do exactly what my ex did to me. So here is my question. Is disparity in skiing skill a legitimate reason to end a relationship? And if so, do I just tell him that or do I let him down easy? Cody, what say you? Yes, that is a very <laughs> legitimate reason. I I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. And it's like there's a lot of dynamics at play here, obviously. But the main one is you're most likely when we're dating, we're looking for a life partner, someone that you're going to be spending the rest of your life with. And compatibility goes to the doing the things you love. And to me, it doesn't even sound like it's necessarily an issue of this person isn't as good as me. It's more that just this person doesn't love the outdoors, love skiing, love hiking quite like I do. That's just a compatibility issue at that one point. You're going to, as you were in a relationship grow, like you're going to be continually drawn to the outdoors while this person stays at home. That's going to create relationship dynamics that are only going to get worse over time. Um, I've seen it with a lot of professional skiers. There's like two types of relationships that happen and professional athletes in these sports. There's one husband and wife relationship that is similar to Lisa and I's where we can do everything together. We're both professional athletes. We ski the exact same stuff and we can go do anything together. It's awesome. But then there's this other level where there's kind of the one person is the professional athlete and skiing's their lives and the other person is just totally fine with just living in a mountain town loves everything else not that into skiing and snowboarding i've actually found the middle ground to be the worst that's exactly. when i've seen relationships devolve the quickest when yep. one person wants to do that stuff but can't keep up the other person wants to go ski for themselves the other person they start to get this weird dynamic of like why won't you ski with me you need to teach me you need to get me better and so i've seen this like all or nothing kind of relationship and maybe this relationship could be like that and maybe there's such a win in everything else of this person's life um that Hey, it doesn't matter that this person doesn't like the outdoors, but they've got to be very comfortable and very acknowledged of the fact that you're going to be outdoors with other people a lot, and they're going to be with their friend groups, comfortable alone, comfortable at home, whatever it is in their own lives. So I don't know if that exists here, but I think it is like, I truly think this is more of just like less of a skiing skill. This person's not as good as me type of dynamic and more just like life compatibility, interest compatibility that, you know, ultimately I potentially don't think is going to work out. And the last part of it, like, I don't know if you let him down easy or not, no matter what, every breakup feels terrible. Like when you break up with someone, even if you're the one breaking up with that person, it makes you feel crappy. Like, I don't know how it is, but you're going to make someone feel crappy no matter what you break up with them for. It's part of life. It's part of evolving. It's just kind of what you have to do. So I think it's a very legitimate reason. What do you think? <laughs> I think that this points to some bigger issues potentially and the bigger questions. And so, and I mean, this is funny. I mean, look, again, you live in a mountain town. This question comes up all the time. I am not going to name any names of friends who absolutely are in this place of like this person is great in a lot of ways but like it's literally like but i'm not 
sure if she is really mountain biking at exactly my particular level, which is to say, like, you're not the best mountain biker on planet Earth, nor the worst. So wait, you got to find somebody out there that you're compatible with in all these ways that really matter. But then also you're trying to hit the target of like, they're kind of exactly in my ballpark when it comes to whether it's mountain biking or trail running or kayaking or and or skiing or all of the above. Like, I don't know, man, like it's pretty hard to find great compatibility when you don't have those factors also in play. One other thing I was thinking about, let's move out of mountain sports for a minute. Like if you are a passionate basketball player maybe you play a little college basketball whatever and now you're playing like city rec leagues basketball players aren't like i'm looking for a girl or a guy that are exactly at the same level but not too much better than me but not way worse and i don't really know that golfers do that so like just be clear mountain loving people we might be in a real freaking weird zone here that most of the rest of the world is like, yeah, that's not a thing. Like go play basketball with your friends or meet people at the gym who then become your friends. And I would submit that that is probably a better way to approach this than the like, oh, I got to find the girl or the guy who's, you know, just intellectually interesting enough and just fun enough and you know isn't a total disaster at life or is willing to put up with me being a disaster at life and they also have to be within a this little range of my ability at the two or three sports i'm into this is this is this is not great no, and you you bring up a very astute point. You're you're saying like the the narrowing of potential partners gets really really narrow in a mountain town and with lifestyle sports. Yeah, and again, maybe it's like it's not necessarily the skill is is as important, but the compromise is the most important. All relationships take compromise in some level of or another. And to me, like if someone isn't necessarily as good at the sport as you, well, that person has to be willing to compromise and go with that person and slow down or be some more supportive, whatever it is. And then that other person has to be able to have comfortable enough for that person to go out and do stuff with people of their skill range. So like, in the most ideal situation, yeah, you do find someone in your skill range or you do find someone that has that level of compromise that we were talking about in professional athlete relationships. But like ultimately, like you need some sort of compromise when it comes to this, the, the letter itself. Well, they were talking about ski sale. It seems like more just like a not interested in these sports like I am kind of level. And to me, that is more of a like kind of probably potential breakup quality i think what the guy that dumped her did maybe is probably better in the long run because he wasn't willing to compromise he wasn't willing to slow down and be supportive of you um that maybe seems a little dickish but it's probably for the better in the long run but this specific issue seems more about just general interest level mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know you were 
yeah, you were like, because that is the exact question. Is yeah. disparity in skiing skill a legitimate reason to end a relationship? You were like, yes. Yeah. And I, 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 I would just phrase it slightly different. I'd be like, breaking up with boring people or people that don't have their own passions and interests or the ability to make friends. And like, that's to me, the bigger reason to go break up with somebody. It, Cause if it's, you know, cause I'm like, look, how about you go ski? I'm going to go try to do this thing today or whatever. And if they're like, cool, I'm excited to, you know, because I'm an interesting person and I want to either read or watch this movie or write this book or go hang out with these great friends of mine. If there's those things aren't in place. And so it really does narrow into, you got to be exactly at my ski level. Oh, I don't like your long-term chances actually at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, exact level ski level that is pretty wide in many ways but like i ultimately i do think it is beneficial to try and find that person that is your partner because i just know that for elise and i like we do so much together i still do my stuff on my own she doesn't like touring all that much and she wants to go ski the ski area there's days where i want to go touring and she's like let's go to the ski area okay there's compromise there. She also knows that I need to go work out and get my fitness in. So there, there is a level of compromise, even though we do have different ski uh, skills in many ways. We are downhill skiers, very comparable, but I do a lot more uphill than she does. So that's just, um, I don't know. I, I do ultimately think compromise is good in a relationship. I do think in this instance, it's more of a general interest. I do think the ski sale, although I painted it with a broad stroke of yes, I do think it still is sort of a valid reason in many ways, if that person isn't willing to compromise in their relationship and their interests for your interests. All right. A bunch of people are going to listen to this and be like, Cody told me to just hold out till I find that guy or girl that's skiing exactly kind of at that level. But, and then we just compromise on whether we're skiing inbounds or touring. That's what they're all going to go say. So I'm giving you a negative one. I'm giving you a plus one on the first answer, but a minus one on this. Not really, but, uh, I don't know. God bless everybody. This is this is a tricky one, and I'm just trying to create more single people in, that, in mountain towns. There's not enough single <laughs> right. people, so that's all exactly. I'm trying to do. Yeah. Cody's trying to keep you all single. I'm trying to bring you all together and to bring more happiness, you know, into the world. But uh, yeah, my big thing is don't date boring people that don't have friends. Yeah, yeah, have they need to have interests and friends, and then you're probably on a more solid footing here. Let's do one more. All right, this one we have to read. Because, you know, we've talked a lot about Top Gun on reviewing the news, and this person specifically asked to be called Maverick. So, Maverick, this one's for you. Maverick writes, I'm in my early 20s and about to finish college, and I'm planning on moving to a mountain town after I graduate. I spent a whole season as a ski bum before college and had the best year of my life. My girlfriend of about three years is an avid skier and has been one of my main backcountry ski partners in the past years, but she is not keen on moving away from the city. I do see a possible long-term future with her, but I think that dating long distance indefinitely will be too damaging for our relationship. How do I balance living my life how I want with maintaining what has been an incredible relationship? Is this divergence in what we each want too large 
to reconcile. I know that I am far from the first person to feel like they have to choose between a partner and their passion, but I am open to suggestions here. Thanks. Cody. It totally depends on the individual circumstance. So I had a relationship when I was pretty young, probably around this age, um, with a woman that didn't do anything that I did. Um, wasn't into the mountains at all, did not want to move away from the city, um, even smallish cities at any sort of way. That was, an, and we did most of our relationship long distance because I was living in Tahoe in the winters, would come back to Santa Cruz in the summers, we'd be back together. But that was irreconcilable because it was generally just general interest levels were not there. Elise and I, when we started dating, I was going to college down in Santa Cruz and she was still living up in Tahoe full time. So I would be gone for six to seven months of the year down in college. She would come down and visit. I would try and come up and visit. But we had a long distance relationship. I would say most of my relationships when I first was dating and before I met Elise were long distance in some way or form. So I believe in the power that long distance relationships can work. I think you have to do a little bit extra to be able to be talking a lot, be on the phone a lot. Um, you have to put in time and extra work. You have to go out of your way to visit that person, go to where they're at. You come, She comes to where you're at. Um, and in this specific instance, I don't think this is irreconcilable. I think like this could be a phase. Um, this could be just where that person is in life. And, you know, the thing with passions is they do change a lot. You know, skiing has been my number one passion through my life. I knew that from the get go when I had that ex that once told me at one point that skiing is number one, and I will always be number two. And I was kind of like, yep, that's true. Uh, but because my life is revolved around this and that's who I am at heart. But like, ultimately, like this person's in the city, they might be warming up to move to the mountains. You might be like, hey, like I can move to a city that's got enough access to mountains, other sports. If the relationship is strong, it can survive the distance. So I personally would say like, no, put that work in. Uh, if you really believe this is a great relationship and you do have amazing times in the mountains, like put effort into it. And if it doesn't work out in the long term, then it was, that's the way it was going to go regardless. But right now I think it's, it is totally workable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's one word in his question where he says, I think that dating long distance indefinitely will be too damaging for our relationship. Yeah, I mean, at some point, if you're like, I I absolutely am committed to living in Tokyo, and you're like, well, I'm absolutely committed to living in Crested Butte. Okay, I think we call that an impasse, but, but absolutely, I'm with you. Like, try this out. And I do think that, yeah, absolutely, time in the mountains together or doing these activities, any activities that a couple loves that's fantastic but man like i'm way more interested for if you're if if the goal is long-term success and not just a short-term good time like what are the communication styles like increasingly for me i'm like are you good in a disaster when the shit hits the fan is this person someone that actually keeps their cool and you know, like helps to negotiate or mitigate the damage or 
we probably, maybe some of you haven't, sometimes maybe you've dated somebody who's like, there's actually like a real emergency or problem and then you have to deal with this person as well. And it just actually makes things worse. And I'm like, people that are good in a crisis, that's like a great skill. Are the communication styles the same? Do you appreciate their outlook on the world? You know, do they have a lot of passions? And maybe they're not yours, but that can be cool too. If it's like, what are you into? Tell me about that. So I think if you have a number or some of those things, or you're still exploring to see if those broader things are in place, my God, the the mountain town, do we live in a city or in a small mountain town? Or is there some commuting, you know, compromising on that front? That's the thing where you should be compromising, not like some of the bigger stuff I'm talking about. And that's exactly where I was going to go to as well is like, are you willing to compromise you moving to a mountain town and she willing to compromise to move into maybe a different city? I don't uh, have no idea where this person lives, but it's like, I don't know. Is it Salt Lake City or Denver? Is that applicable enough where the person has kind of the big city, the kind of the life around that, but then you can still have outdoors. You can still go both do stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that like an East Coast city where, you know, is there... If you are both willing to compromise a little bit, then this relationship will work. I personally think if you're not willing to compromise, you're like, I'm moving to a mountain town, then that points the finger at you going like, well, maybe it isn't, you know, I'm not ready for this relationship. I'm personally so devoted to being a ski bum going back to that year I spent before I went to college as a ski bum that I want to do that again, then, then you personally aren't ready for this relationship and that's fine but it's just you have to question yourself if you're willing to compromise for her and she is for you then it can work if not then i you know you're probably going to end up making this indefinite and it won't work Mm -hmm. i think that is our first foray into relationship advice yeah i guess the people will tell us what they thought of the quality of the advice. Brace your, brace yourself, <laughs> Cody. I, I, uh, oh, we'll it's going to be great when I'm getting, we're getting responses from the, the girl's boyfriend who got broken up with and being like, F you, Cody, for telling you to break <laughs> up with me. It's going to be right. awesome. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Yeah. Feel that guy should definitely uh, write in. I want to hear your opinion on that advice. I know before we go, we're going to do maybe a shorter, what we're reading and watching, but you specifically wanted to talk a bit about white lotus yeah so that was yours the the trip that i just went on at least i had an ipad and a lot of things downloaded so i Uh got to binge watch quite a lot of things and i binge watch the first two seasons of white lotus and um you are through one you're almost done through two so we won't talk about two but i wanted to talk to you about one in particular so overall it was great yeah i really the, the hype that surrounded it from the summer, the, the the conversation that came about with it, like the more I've thought about that show, mm-hmm. the more I kind of like it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I sent you a text right after a bit, like it was an amazing show about nothing that was just characters. And what I meant by that was it's not a plot driven show. It's not like this thing or this through line of what happens to these characters through a plot is what drives it. It is just character interaction and character kind of like highlighting the 
true selves through this that I thought was brilliant. I mean, I honestly don't think I've seen a a better take on social class, mm-hmm. performative wokeism yeah. to... Yeah. I mean, the social class thing is just what season one is about. And I thought it was brilliant. It was, I mean, essentially to sum it up to me, it's about rich white folk destroying everything around them in the most unforeseen ways that they don't even remotely see and just leaving a trail literally of bodies, well, one body and people in jail for the acts that they did. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, the writing on that show is really pretty top notch. And the music um, too. The music the was music. amazing. So good. The music is amazing. And and I'm we we basically just we're not gonna do any spoilers at all for season two. And I don't want you to I don't know how it ends yet. I've I've got one or two episodes to go. But the music in the second season, because it's been a minute since I watched the first. I'm like, this soundtrack is extraordinary. The The cinematography in the second season, again, you've watched them kind of back to back. So I don't remember being like blown away by the visuals in season one, the way that in season two, I'm like, this is the most gorgeous show I've watched. Was that also present in one and I'm just forgetting? Yeah. Uh, funny enough, I've stayed at that hotel, <laughs> the four seasons Wait, in Maui. <laughs> in one? Yeah, in one. I stayed at that <laughs> hotel for a week. I was there for, I ended up, we got a free, and being free. So we stayed at the Four Seasons, which is right near Honolulu Bay. So that was kind of funny. I was like, wait, I recognize this hotel. I've been in the White Lotus, but a lot of people have. So it's not that's something that special. But um, no, I thought it, I actually, yeah, season two was definitely more beautiful just because they're in Palermo and it's just yeah. like has this European Ugh. feel to it. But uh, season one, I think they captured Hawaii really, really well. And I think, you know, the one critique was of it, there are certain characters that just kind of like disappeared. Like the whole, the woman in the opening scene that ends up being pregnant and she just like kind of disappears. Mm-hmm. I didn't get why that character was there. There was certain kind of characters in the show that was like, what was the point of them? I felt mm-hmm. like it kind of got a little bit edited down, but Armand was like by far one of the best characters I've seen. Uh, yes. Murray Bartlett, a New Zealand actor, Australian actor, just crushed that character in yep. so, oh, like one of the most likable characters that you've ever witnessed on TV. I thought he just just incredible. He, yeah. My my short answer on this, by the way, for me, like top characters of all time, still Gus from Breaking Bad yep. is up there. And and Armand is in that pantheon as well. Incredible performance. Absolutely incredible. So, um, and just, I don't know, the way they blended characters, the Sydney Sweetney's role and her friend's role of, I thought it was so just on point of this like performative wokeism getting angry at parents and everyone for all these slights and all these like just perceived slights, but they're also so incredibly rich and destroy people in their wake, um, both their friends, new friends. And just like, it was so fitting that it was like, yeah, these incredibly wealthy people who are like, hate their mom because she voted for Hillary Clinton and she's not like leftist enough, but she's got everything and still continues to want to have everything and won't give up a single dime in this process. Um, that character was just like, oh, so they were really good. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was brilliant. Um, 
it was a really, really well-written show. So do you have, because you can say this without doing spoilers or something, but in season two, so I agree with you. Season yeah. one is not only, but clearly first about class. Yeah. Season two, do you have a different take on what you yeah. see happening there or how you describe it? It's all about, to me, how sex can be utilized in different ways. So the whole the whole thing is whether it's the the prostitutes using sex to do things, whether that's the the husband Michael Imperioli who um, you know uses sex to do something, make him feel better about himself. It's essentially to me it was all about the way people use sex to benefit their lives beyond just the simple pleasures of it. So silently, I thought the best character in season two was Megan Fahey, who plays Daphne, um, who's the husband or the, she's the wife of the, the wealthy banker guy. The, yeah. She, I don't know. She she's steals great. the show. She's really, really good. And I think that's her character arc is kind of like, to me, like kind of the whole point of season two. Like what she goes through and what she says, especially towards the end in the last two episodes, which you haven't watched to me is what kind of wraps it all up. And like, that's what the season's about. I think that I was just in on season one as kind of a, just a, from the cotton candy entertainment aspect of it. I was just happy to keep going and, you know, having another bite of, uh, of the cotton candy this season two is definitely like it's less fun mm -hmm. and there you're seeing more conflict in relationship and darkness in relationships but it is one that after an episode even if it was like okay well that wasn't simply a good fun time these things some of the conversations and moments definitely have stuck with me and just Man, the the portrayal and depiction of certain dynamics in relationships um, is so dialed. It's brilliant. Again, brilliant writing, brilliant thinking. Yeah. No, to me, season it's interesting because season two has a darker tone, but season one is actually darker, in my opinion. And from a from a broader macro point of view of guns blazing on this huge macro scale. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Like the wake of destruction that the main characters leave behind is way worse than in season two, in my opinion. And so, but they did, that's what I think does a, such a good job of distracting you from that destruction. And, but then you kind of think about it if one character just, just disappears and you're just like, oh, that person's just gone and they have the rest of their life to deal with this issue. And this family is just like, cool, we're going to go to Tahiti next month, going back to New York City, and just like single-handedly destroyed some poor guy's life. Um, so yeah, it was uh, I, I just really brilliant writing. Yeah. Great show. Well done. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, uh, it is remarkable when we've talked about the soundtrack we've talked about the writing we've talked about the visuals um you know we've talked about some of the acting performances themselves man like all bringing all of this stuff together is pretty remarkable so, so that's yeah. the white lotus um totally. check it out folks well hey guess what i'm going skiing now 
It is snowing. It's been snowing. It's going to keep snowing here. We're not getting the like insane levels of snowfall that we're seeing in some other places, but man, I uh, I am happy with what we got going on and and that I actually get to talk to you and then still go get on the mountain. So yeah, well, I don't. <laughs> it's raining here, and I'm going to go for a walk around the neighborhood <laughs> for my exercise. So <laughs> perfect. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Well, Cody, always fun. Uh, <laughs> That's my COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. That was your COVID acting up. Yeah. We all hope you feel better very soon. We are talking on the 30th. This will drop in the new year, but uh was a fun year of reviewing the news. Indeed. I, I get a lot of people commenting on like friends either commenting or blister members like emailing about one of the specific things that were talked about on an episode. And um, it's pretty funny. Like I think Cody totally got this wrong or, or reverse Cody was totally right about this. What are you even thinking? And, and uh, so it's been pretty fun to see, uh, you know, our little conversations kind of amplify out there. And uh, yeah, so we hope people have enjoyed it. Keep those mountain town questions and relationship questions coming unless you thought we sucked at this. Look forward to doing this some more uh, in 2023. Totally. Yeah, put some comments up on the um, on the Blister website because those are fun to see the comments and we generally do respond, especially you and I respond here and there as well. So um, yeah, if you have comments, if you you know think you're an idiot, please put that on the Blister review. I would really <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, especially when it's when I'm the idiot. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So if you definitely, if you're very, if you thought from this episode that just Jonathan did a terrible job, (laughs) is a dumbass, has horrible takes, please comment that on the website. I would really appreciate that. (laughs) Perfect. Well, happy new year to you. Get well soon, and we'll talk to you soon. Happy new year, buddy. Sounds good. See you, man. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. Thanks to Open Snow for sponsoring this episode. Again, go to opensnow.com slash blister. And then we will catch you later this week over on our other podcasts. And I'm going to announce it here. We've got Jeremy Jones coming on gear 30 to talk snowboard design and to talk a bit about the jones lineup of boards and i couldn't be more excited jeremy has said that he wanted to come on gear 30 and geek out a bit about design so that episode is going to drop this friday and i think this is going to be a very very good one so gear 30 this friday with jeremy jones All right, everybody. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon.